From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Brian Yell, and I am a firefighter paramedic currently assigned to the EMS section as the Supply and Equipment Coordinator. I'm going to be your host for the four-part series of this podcast. Today, we are doing something a little different than usual. On September 28th, the OCFA hosted the Vegas Strong After Action Review of the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting in Las Vegas. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentation on Target Solutions, and there is a post-test in there so you can get the whole whopping one continuing education credit for each presentation. You can also choose to listen to the presentations as a podcast and take the test on Target Solutions afterwards. We wanted to give you a few options to access the presentations so you can learn what we learned that day. This is the fourth and final podcast in our series and features Karen Donahue. She is a registered nurse and emergency preparedness coordinator for Desert Springs Hospital. Though it is not a trauma center, her hospital received an extraordinary number of trauma patients due to it being the closest hospital to the concert venue. Here's Karen. Um, just before we get into this, just give you a little background on me because I get to come at this from a couple of different perspectives. I've been in the ER for 30 years. I have worked everywhere from a frontier medical clinic in Yellowstone National Park to level one trauma centers. I've been a flight nurse, I've been a pre-hospital nurse, I've, I've been in, in the ER for 30 years. I freaking love the ER, right? I love emergency medicine. Um, I have been on volunteer ambulance as EMS because as I would tell my partners there, I have no desire to go into burning flames. I don't want to go in. You guys go in, take care of that crap, bring it on out to me. I'll take care of it when you get it outside. But I, I don't want to be a firefighter. My son is a captain. No, what is he? He's an assistant chief in the Air Force. He gets a, he gets a promotion the first uh, on Monday. He gets a promotion on Monday to be the strike commander over eight bases for Global Strike Force for Emergency Management, Fire Department, and Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So I'm like, okay, that's awesome, right? That sounds like a fun job. He's gonna be in Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> like, Siri, could you not go someplace better? Okay, so one of the things neither of the other guys said um, that I wanna point out about Las Vegas and this outdoor venue is 22,000 people is nothing. It, that, that's nothing for Las Vegas. We recently had, um, in May, we have it every year, the Electric Daisy Carnival. Have any of you heard of it? Yeah, that's 250,000 of your closest freaky friends. And so, you know, 22,000 is, is nothing. It doesn't, it's not a blip on the radar. They didn't need, at the point that this went on last year, they didn't need to file a plan with the fire department. They had to have the fire inspector come out and say everything is safe. But they didn't have to have an incident action plan with them. They had to have their medical service tent with the community ambulance, which has a special services section. They had to have that, but they, don't have to, they didn't have to have anything else because 22,000 is nothing. It, it, it's, it's, most of our conference, our uh, conventions are way bigger than that. So 22,000 is nothing. That's why we call it a smallish crowd. 
One of the key factors about the shooter being on the 32nd floor is the angle of his um, fire. If you, if you think about the pathophysiology of, of injury, that angle, most of his victims were killed by the initial gunshot because of, they were mostly head, neck, and chest shots. Most of the injured were injured by ricochet shots that came off the ground and back up into the body, which is why they were not fatal. A little bit about my hospital. We have six hospitals in the valley. Um, mine is middle size. We have one that's larger and a couple that are smaller. We're, in a, we're, we're an acute care adult hospital. We don't do women's or children's services anymore. We used to. We don't anymore, and every day I thank God for that. Um, we are damn good at stroke, at STEMI, and bariatric surgery. That's what we do. We excel. We are center of excellence for diabetes. I mean, we, we rock it. The hospital's been there since 1961. It's old, it's ugly, it's dingy, it's dark, it's dank. It was built as a nursing home. It was never designed as a hospital. And it's got some of the best people you'll ever work with there, which is why we all keep coming back. We have a brand new hospital that's been open a year that's bright and shiny and sparkly and pretty and designed to be perfect, you know, and their turnover is so high, it's ridiculous. <laughs> we have 36 beds. Um, actually, we have 32 beds. We have six recliner chairs for those of you in the hospital. I was telling some girls at lunch that um, whoever thought that we would count recliners as patient care beds in our ERs when we started this, or whoever thought that we would consider the hallway bed a typical bed in the hallway would be an assignment. But you guys don't do that in California, right? You don't, you don't do hallway assignments. Uh -huh. Shortly after the shooting, this video came out on Facebook. And the first thing the risk manager and I did was look to see who we needed to fire. Because somebody was filming in the waiting room during this event. And it turns out it wasn't one of our employees. It was a family member of somebody who was there. And every exercise that we've ever done as a hospital, we have our actors come in, right? And they're very, very nice, and they're very polite, and they're very kind, and they do everything you tell them to do. And this was chaos. This was chaos. Um, Dr. Shearer said, you know, they had the notification, because one of his doctors was a SWAT doctor, that they could, um, they had like 10, 15 minutes to get some stuff ready. Our first notification was when the first bullet would walk through the door. And out of the 105 patients we received, 11 came by ambulance. So they all came to the front door. And in our front door, there's one triage nurse, one tech, and that's it. And everybody else is behind locked doors. So these people start pouring in the doors. We got four waves of patients. So as they start pouring in, they're carrying people in by wrist and ankles. They're dragging them in, because we don't have an excess of gurneys. Do you guys have 20 gurneys stored someplace that you can just uh, drop a hat and go get people? You do? Yeah, this is not our ambulance entrance. It's a one-lane drive-through. The ambulance is on the other side of the building. So they're bringing all these people in. Sunrise Hospital is a mile and a half away from Desert Springs. 
and our timeline is identical, which just kind of cracked me up because the shooting started at 10.08. We went on code lockdown, which is to prevent the, or to protect the facility from outside threat. We went on code lockdown at 10.20 when the first gunshot victims came in. That's when I got called because I was home. And they're like, hey, there's been a shooting on the strip. Can you come help us? I said, of course I can. So as I'm driving into work and I'm texting my husband, give me information. I can't, I'm trying to call the country radio station that I know is down at the venue to see what they know and nobody will answer the phone at the radio station. So he texts me back, he goes, multiple terrorists, you know, multiple shootings, looks like a terrorist attack. I'm like, well, guess what I texted him? It was one word. <laughs> Said, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> so, you know, like everybody else said, I, I too was just tooling on down the freeway because there was nobody out there. It was really weird. So I, I get to the hospital, and my thought, I am, I am also an EMS instructor. I'm a paramedic instructor. I'm an EMT instructor. And the first thing I will tell any EM cl EMT class I teach or anything I, I teach is, what is the most important thing? The scene safety, right? And who's the most important person on scene? Me. Because if I, if I can't take care of me, I can't take care of you. So I get to the hospital, I tool down there, I park in the physician's parking space because I can. <laughs> and I sit there for a minute because I'm like, okay, there's an active shooter on the strip. The strip's a mile and a half away. It's four miles away. Where is this active shooter? I've got patients coming in here. What is my safe zone at this point in time? So I just sit there for a second and just look around, right? Scene safety. It's all about being careful. I look down and I see a, a patrol car is at my ambulance entrance. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Cops are here. Okay. Go on in. So I head on in. I go walk by this patrol car that is filled with blood because one of the first victims was brought to us in a stolen police car with a headshot. So I get in and I find that out. I'm like, well, shoot, where are my cops? And there weren't any at that moment in time. So we, we, uh, we get, I walk in, meet with my doctor. We've by this time probably got 15 or 20 patients. Now in a non-trauma hospital, when a gunshot wound walks in, the non-trauma nurse says, holy crap, let's get him to a doctor, right? You don't put them in the waiting room. So we take these first, this first wave of patients that come in and we put them all in beds. And they're, probably, they're all yellows and greens, but they're gunshot wounds. And then the second wave of patients come in and they're, they're yellows and reds and they're critically, critically injured. And we have to remove patients out of beds. I'm sorry, sir, you're not sick enough to be in this bed. Could you please have a seat in the waiting room? I need this for somebody else. In the heat of the moment, when, when it was at its worst. I've got one, my hospitalist, who is from the Air Force, whose brother is on the SWAT team, comes up to me and he goes, um, my brother just called, there's a bomb at the Venetian. <laughs> awesome, we can have explosive injuries on top of gunshots. That'll be a great day. What are we gonna do? So let's plan for that. Now just, for your information. I'm not working as a nurse at this moment in time. I'm the emergency manager, right? So I go in. I'm the incident commander. So we make some changes around the, the department. I go with him out to triage. My waiting room, 
which has only 10 to 14, has 14 chairs out there. It's not a very large area. By 11 o'clock that night, is covered with bodies and blood. We don't have any wheelchairs. We don't have any gurneys. We don't have any place to put these people. They're dragging them in. They're coming in in waves. And we're just putting them on the floor and doing the best we can with what we have. Okay? So we don't know what's going on. My security manager shows up with his director. And I looked at him and I said, I need armed security around this hospital. Now, I don't know about your hospitals here in uh, California, but we have little stickers all over our doors that say no guns, no weapons. This is a safe zone, you know. Please feel free to come hunt here anytime you want. So my security director, because we have a contracted security service, got me 14 armed guards around the perimeter of the hospital, which is awesome. We were safe. The issue I've had since then, one of the after-action items, is nobody else knew, other than the three of us, that we had armed security. I met one of our victims a couple months ago, and he was telling me how he was sitting in front of the, the, he was sitting in the waiting room in a wheelchair, and how vulnerable he felt, because he'd just been, he was in the back of one of the pickups, you know, got thrown in the pickup, got brought to us, he's sitting in a wheelchair, he's six foot four, so he's kind of, kind of tall and lanky, and all of our wind, you know, our walls are glass, and he says how vulnerable he feels sitting there in that waiting room, waiting to be seen, waiting to be treated, not knowing if the, if the shooter's coming for him. Now, I know that we've got a good perimeter, but my coworkers don't know that we have a perimeter. My, my patients don't know that we have a perimeter. And to this day, I haven't figured out a good way to tell everybody that we have a perimeter without making anybody else crazy. So if anybody has a good idea, let me know. Um, so lockdown. I told you our hospital's old and built us a nursing home. It has 17 first floor exterior entrances and exits. Um, it doesn't have a magic button to lock the doors. You get, you get to do it with a key. So being the good emergency manager and incident commander, I get there, I assess the situation, I'm like, we're gonna set up incident command, right? Got, I'm gonna go down and set up the incident command center. I'm walking down through radiology when this group of seven people bleeding accosts me in the hallway. They've broken into one of our back doors seeking help. I take them back to the ER and make the decision at that point in time that um, incident command is gonna be mobile today. We're gonna, we're gonna do this a little bit differently. And I don't remember if it was Chief Took or uh, Dr. Shear that said adapt and overcome. But that's what we did was adapt and overcome. So for those of you that are old enough to know what a two-inch two piece of tape on your thigh can do for documentation, it still works. So just like Sunrise, we called the code triage at um, 2320, an hour after the incident began. That was, a, it seems like a long time, but when you're in a tsunami, a tsunami of a crisis like that, an hour is nothing. It goes by in a heartbeat. You've barely done anything. It's really bizarre how quickly it happened. So we go on to code triage, 2320. I send out a page to my executive leadership team that I need all hands on deck and everybody needs to come in. And they all got there probably by a quarter till, quarter to 12, about 2345, which is I think when Dr. Shear said his hospital administrator on call got there. 
My, uh, my ALC showed up in shorts, a t-shirt, tennis shoes, and a baseball cap, and forgot his hospital ID. And I'm like, dude, one of the most important things we tell you, every hospital is always have your ID. You know, don't leave it in your locker if it's a case of emergency. Like, thank God I know who you are, even if you don't look normal, because he's usually in a three-piece suit. We, it was a complete no-notice event for us. Um, the gentleman that was working triage that night was going to retire in January and retired October 15th instead. It was the end of his career. It was a night that he just couldn't deal with anymore. And what he saw that night is just um, carnage. It was just pure carnage. The paradigm shift about the MCI response. I think Chief um, Took brought it up about how, you know, we have trained all of our professional lives that EMS is going to package everybody up, start their IVs, put their triage tags on, dress those wounds, cut their clothes off, identify them, and take them to the appropriate facility and level load the system. Forever, it's been that way. And it's not. It's not that way. Technology is, our, is not our friend in this. We were having discussions with um, some, some folks were asking about, could we put a trauma hospital designation in Siri? You know, ask, ask Siri where the closest trauma hospital is. For the most part, most people outside of this room don't understand the necessity of, of a trauma hospital or what the difference of a trauma hospital is. They don't, they don't know, nor do they care. If they're injured, they're going to go any place there's a white H and a blue sign, and they don't care if you do it or don't do it. Um, there's many people who still come to Desert Springs to have their babies because that's where they were born. A hospital is a hospital is a hospital is a hospital. So as a community hospital, one of the take-home lessons is, even if you're not a trauma hospital, even if you're a mile away from a trauma hospital, your staff should know how to address the initial 60 minutes of a trauma to stabilize and transfer, to provide that basic life-saving care in a fashion that's going to provide the best outcome for the patient. My boss recently asked me, like last week, how long does it take to get a nurse trauma trained? And I was doing a uh, MCI exercise. And I said, are you talking about for Thursday, or are you talking about trauma nurse core curriculum? And he says, you know, TNCC. I said, okay. TNCC is 17 hours. You renew it every four years. It's a, it's, it's a great class. It's a pain to teach, because they don't give you much latitude. But it's a really, really good class, and yes, one of our after-action reports from October 1 is that 50% of our full-time nursing staff will be trained in TNCC by the end of this year. And we're at about 35% right now, so we're, we're making progress. And he's like, why don't we have it? And I said, because you won't pay for it. And he goes, what do you mean we won't pay for it? I said, the hospital, the corporation itself, chooses not to provide that as required education because none of our hospitals are trauma hospitals. You can take it on your own. You can take, use your PTO and take the time off to go do it. Nobody's going to stop you from taking it, but the hospital doesn't provide it in the system, which is something that is now being changed because my boss is a fabulous man and has realized that that basic level of care is necessary when you consider the volume of people that come to Las Vegas and how close we are to the Strip. And, you know, they're building that new Raiders Stadium. 
and guess which hospital is closest to the Raiders Stadium? How exciting is that? At least the, the Vegas Knights don't play close to us, they play close to UMC. So that, that's good, they can, they can do that. However, the Vegas Knights did choose us to be their medical providers for the season, which I think is really cool. I don't know how they got that marketing thing done, but they did. I have 27 radios charged, ready to go. That night, I took about 12 of them, turned them all, literally turned them on and put them on the correct channel and handed them to each physician and mid-level provider so that we could have communication because we have four areas of our emergency department. There's no line of sight. They all dropped them in their lab jacket pockets and never saw them again. So while Dr. Shear's like, I wish I had a radio, I'm like, I wish I had people that use radios. <laughs> Security, we talked about resources, um, not being a trauma center, and being a facility that I'm sure, like many of you, get just-in-time deliveries. So um, by Sunday night, we're pretty much out of everything because our delivery comes from California, bright and early Monday morning. We ran out of chest tubes, we ran out of central line kits, we ran out of four by fours, we ran out of IV start kits, we ran out of normal sailing. We have a nursing home across the street. The administrator of the nursing home across the street is a registered nurse who attends our coalition meetings, who I know on a personal basis, who I chat with regularly, and who I called that night and said, Jana, I need, and she says, send somebody over. In cases of saline, cases of four by fours, my uh, assistant chief nursing officer texted me. She says, what do you need? I said, stop at my office at the other hospital, because it's between our hospital and, and her home. I said, I need my triage tags that are on the desk up there. Plus, I need suture kits, central line kits, and chest tubes. So she brought a car full of stuff from the sister facility. Other facility, sister facilities, sent over stuff. One of our issues is I, I, trying to figure out a way to centralize a cache of supplies, because we don't have a warehouse in our facility. Um, we don't have any place to put things. So if we had a centralized cache of trauma supplies, like Dr. Shear was talking about, the red, yellow, green pallets, I think is fabulous, that any of our hospitals could utilize, depending on where the incident takes place. The, our big sticking point right now is how do we move it? We've decided to put it in a trailer. How do we move it? So things are going forward, but they're slow. But they're, they, we're making progress. In incident command, incident command on the fly works. What we did was I would, we had a standing meeting every 15 minutes in the ER break room. We'd review what was going on, and then we would go forward from there. And, the five of us, would, I would give the five of us our, our assignments and we would go out and do it. One of the most interesting factors of that night that I didn't think I'd ever get to see come true, that I provide a new employee orientation every month, is your incident command position does not equal your day-to-day -day operations position. So when the CEO is taking direction from me as the incident commander, some of the staff are like, why isn't he, why isn't he doing incident command? And this is what I tell my executive staff, and, and you guys are, are welcome to use it if you want. 
I don't want my hospital administrators helping me in operations, right? They get in the way. I need them to help at the policy level. I need them talking to politicians, to other CEOs, to the media, talking to the families. I need them doing that high-level stuff and allowing the people that have the boots on the ground to get the boots on the ground work done. And it worked really, really well that night. So we got the four waves of people, right? Not so bad. Holy crap, they're bad. Oh my God, these guys are really bad. And then when you think it's all over, a city bus with 27 people on it that had been parked down at the venue because it had been under gunfire and couldn't leave, dropped this load of people off at our front door and said, go on in, they'll help you. Just when we thought we were done, another 27 people come walking through the door at the same time with gunshot injuries. It was a little overwhelming. For those of you that use an electronic health record, holy crap, it is nothing but a pain in the butt. Um, you can't live with it during a crisis and you can't live without it. If you go to straight paper, which is what we did, we went to downtime forms, you can't find your patients, especially when you have 30 of them out in the waiting room laying on the floor. The doctors can't find the patients, radiology can't find the patients. We're all so dependent on the silly EHR to tell us where our patients are located, what tests have been ordered, what's been done, that it, it's just a major um, bottleneck. So be careful about that. Using downtime works well when you have some control over the situation. We ended up taking pieces of paper and taping them to people's chests so the doc could write a quick note or a quick order and it could be signed off by the nurse so we knew it was done. We didn't run into the same issues that um, Sunrise did because the ambulance took them the most critical patients. We didn't get that many. But one, one of the funny things Sunrise did that night, we had two critically, critically injured patients. They were intubated, had chest tubes, central lines. You know, they, needed, they needed to go to a trauma center and my doc picked up the phone and he called Sunrise. He's like, I've got these two critical patients that need to go. And the person on the other end of the phone, who turned out to be the CFO at Sunrise, said, we're full, we can't take them, and hung up. Um, my doctor turned around, he goes, Sunrise said no, and I said, well, of course they did, they're kind of busy right now, let's just go to level three, just, let's not focus on this right now. About a week later, I was meeting with some of the Sunrise folks, and I said, you know, somebody told my doctor no, and the guy goes, yeah, it was me. Um, he says, I wasn't thinking. He says, we were so overwhelmed, there were so many people, all I said was, I can't do it, and I hung up the phone. Gotcha. Understand, in the heat of the moment, things like that happen. But my poor doctor was like, they said no, what, now what do I do? Well, don't keep them here. Um, the victims, non-victims issue, because our waiting room was so, so full of people, both victims and non-victims, and we didn't know who'd been seen by a doctor and who hadn't, um, we came up with a plan to use armbands to identify who'd been seen by um, a physician and which physician it was. We just got some funky colored armbands from armbands.com, and they, we keep them in the doc box, and there's a little bundle of them, so when bad things happen and you need to go out, if you've got a red and green striped band on, that means that a doctor saw you 
And we don't really care who the red and green stripe belongs to. We just know you've been seen by a doctor. And it's a visual to anybody else who goes into the waiting room that you've been seen and to watch over you. We didn't have the staff response like Sunrise did because we don't have the staff like Sunrise does. But a lot of our staff came in. Um, we didn't call anybody. There was no time because the, the patients came so quickly. We didn't call anybody, but they came in and they went to work. And it was, it was awesome, it was phenomenal the way the hospital came together. Um, at the end of the day, when we were cleaning up and I was returning vital sign machines, and hospital people will appreciate this, you couldn't get a vital sign machine from another floor to use in the ER if, if I don't know, if you offered them money. And that, the following morning, I had 12 vital sign machines downstairs I had to find their homes for. So they, they came together, they brought us down gurneys, um, they brought us down wheelchairs, which are always hiding, never available, but they found them, and they brought them down to us, and the hospital really, really pulled together. And I know Dr. Shear mentioned it, but I want to reiterate that the EVS staff was phenomenal. Now, at my facility, they were pulling bodies out of vehicles, and then they were sweeping up trash in between cars, and then they'd pull more bodies out of vehicles, and then they'd sweep up more trash. When it came time for critical incident stress debriefing, um, the Veterans Administration sent crisis vans to our hospitals. They were phenomenal because these were combat folks that had seen this kind of carnage. And they parked outside of our ER for 12 hours a day so people could go out and talk to them whenever they needed to. And the EVS staff needed to go talk to them more than anybody because they saw things they never should have seen. So of those transfers, we discovered, because the ER physician that was working with me that night happens to be best friends with the medical director for EMS in the county, um, that we have a bus in the EMS system. Not, not an ambulance, but a bus. And he sent the bus over to us. And the bus pulled into our front door waiting room area. One of the medics got out and walked into the waiting room and said, if you can walk, get on the bus. And they took 12 patients to another hospital that was further away. We don't know which patients they took. At the time, we didn't know which patients they took. Um, but we had that resource that we didn't even know was available. That was amazing. Um, the outlying hospitals got a lot of the less injured patients. And this one hospital did get 12 patients all at once, but they were all greens. The uh, four DOAs that we had. So our plan has always been to put the decedents in the GI lab, especially at night when you know nobody's in the GI lab. So we conveniently put the four patients in the GI lab. In the course of the evening, Metro had sent a squadron of officers to each hospital for protection purposes. And so I've got four young cops at the hospital. And probably around midnight, I walked up to one of them and I said, excuse me, there are four decedents in the GI lab. And he says, yeah. I said, they're victims of a crime. He says, yeah. He said, they're your problem, not mine. And he looks at me and goes, what do I do? Because these are street cops. They're not homicide detectives. They don't know what to do with it. And I was like, I'm not sure, but you should probably call your captain and find out what your SOP is. But this is something you need to take care of. While I'm having the conversation with that man, somebody moved a whole bunch of greens into the GI lab. 
So I've got my first four, three bays are filled with four incredibly bloody, ravaged bodies. Curtains are pulled around them, of course, but they're still there. And then the rest of the room is filled with minorly injured people. And so we're trying to assist the coroner and Metro in their investigation, protect the evidence, take care of the patients, and get things moving. So one of our plans has now been that the, um, we will go to the cath lab recovery area, which is way in the back, and that's where the decedents will go so that we can continue to use the GI lab for greens. So kind of like Dr. Shear said with their PACU, we have a place to flow to now that we can still use uh, as, a, as a space. One of the, when one of the first dead people came in, one of my young nurses started CPR. He, he doesn't know anything about trauma. He doesn't know the stats on trauma resuscitation. And later, about a week later, he asked me, he said, should I have done that? I said, of course you should. You had no idea there were 100 people coming behind her. So yes, when that's the first patient that you're presented with, absolutely you start that. And then, you know, we do what we do and, and call it. But yeah, you do start it, even if, even if there's no chance. Because at that moment in time, for all you know, that's the only patient you have. Carlos Santana sent that bouquet of roses to every ER in the valley. It's beautiful. We got so much bottled water. We got pallets of bottled water. We do live in a desert. We didn't have a water failure, but the community wants to help. They want to give. They don't know what else to give, right? So when there's a flood or a tornado, what are they always giving? Water. We got pallets of water. We got more pizzas than I've ever seen in my life. And the, the ironic thing was most of the goodies were delivered during day shift. <laughs> right? Monday through Friday. Who did all the hard work of October 1? Yeah. The Sunday night night shift? So when people would ask, what can we do? How can we help? What can we send your staff? My response was always, send the night shift something. Send the night shift sandwiches, send the night shift pizzas, send the night shift taco truck. The people that sent food trucks to the ear were probably the best choice of all, because at least it was fresh food. Because there's a logistical nightmare attached to getting 50 to 100 pizzas. What do you do with them? We don't have food storage for that. We don't have enough people to eat. We spread them throughout the hospital. But, you, you know, people want to help. I never thought that I would need a volunteer management coordinator in the hospital. I always thought that's something the county should take care of. Shouldn't have to worry about it in my little hospital. We received so many donations of things. And you want to you want to thank those that gave it to you, right? You want to you want to recognize that they reached out to you. So if you don't have a volunteer donation planned, plan one. Um, psychological assistance was huge. Our first couple weeks after the event, absenteeism went up to about thirty percent um, throughout the whole hospital, not just in the ER, but throughout the whole hospital. As the anniversary is coming close, we're keeping a close eye on staff. Again, not just the ER, but surgical services saw a lot of nastiness that they'd never seen before. EVS, like I mentioned. Security was huge in taking care of visitors and family members. So we're keeping a pretty close eye on everybody, and we don't have any special event planned for October 1. 
other than we, we've all just been recently given um, Vegas Stronger Still, Vegas Strong Still shirts to, to wear on, um, on Monday and then every Friday this month as a sign, outward sign of solidarity for Vegas Strong. One of the things I did notice with our employees is they didn't want to go to EAP. They were okay going out to talk to the uh, VA people that came, the, the vet center crisis counselors. They didn't want to go to human resources and get any EAP information, and they didn't want to contact EAP if you gave them the information. Because there's still some kind of stigma attached that uh, perhaps your employer is going to find out and that you know there's something wrong with you. And particularly, ER staff, and I'm saying it's probably not too unusual with fire police either, but we're all tough, right? We can handle it. That's why we went into this. There's nothing wrong with me. I got no problems. Why are you bothering me? Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. One of the biggest issues was information. Because this was a huge, huge event, right? So everybody wants information. Las Vegas Metro wanted information. FBI wanted information. Insurance companies wanted information. Um, State Department wanted information because some of our patients were international. And they all wanted the same information, but at different times and in different ways. When the cops started showing up at the hospital, they would call me down to come talk to them. And I, I would look at these two uniform officers and I'm like, man, I swear I just told that to, to your buddy, you know, an hour ago. Do you guys not talk to each other? And as, as Chief Tuke was saying, you know, these silos of excellence, they don't talk to each other. They need the information for different things. The sheriff needed the updated numbers every morning by 8 a.m. because he had the pressure of the public and the media. So one of the things that we've come to the conclusion that we're going to do in the state of Nevada, and we're actually trying to put it into Nevada state statute, is for a crisis situation, we have a questionnaire that has like five basic HIPAA compliant questions on it. That will be the only thing we will use. There will be a direct point of contact at each hospital, and that's the information that will be okay to give, and everybody will be able to give it. Because law enforcement got so frustrated when they would call the hospital, and I'm sure any of you know this, if you call the hospital and ask any information on a patient, the only thing you're going to get is, yes, they're here, and that's all the information I can give you, or no, they're not here, and that's all the information I can give you. And, and HIPAA is used as a shield of defense. So in, in an effort to meet the needs of law enforcement and meet the needs of the media and meet the needs of the patients and their family members and protect the hospitals, through the Hospital Association, we are coming up with this process and a form that we're going to put into state legislature so that we have a way to do this through Nevada Revised Statutes. Because um, it's amazing the amount of information necessary. I spent six weeks combing through every patient that came to Desert Springs Hospital pretty much on at least a weekly basis to find different pieces of information that were requested and required, primarily by law enforcement, um, because it's part of their investigation. Our Southern Nevada Healthcare Coalition is a large, robust coalition. We have Every healthcare organization in the Valley is in it. We have home health, we have dialysis centers, we have the weather service, the FBI, the gas company, power company, 
Las Vegas Metro Fire, you pick something, all the ambulance services, all the fire services, the school district healthcare system is part of our coalition. And one of the things that is so valuable about that is we meet monthly and we have face-to-face -face interaction and we get to know each other. And in the, in the course of a crisis, it was personal connection that made a difference. And when somebody at the MAC texted me and asked me a question, I knew who was asking me and what information I could give them. Um, I am part of the Medical Surge Area Command, which is part of our multi-agency coordination center, our MAC. And for New Year's Eve, it's a big deal. So my, every New Year's Eve I spend down at the, at the county MAC, because it's fun and exciting. And we call the hospitals every hour to verify their ability to take more patients and to see what they have and to see if they need anything. And the see if they need anything came directly from October 1. Because the communications office did notify the hospitals that something bad was going on. In the course of our meetings since the meeting, or since the shooting, one of the communications guys said to me, you didn't say you needed anything when I talked to you. I said, in the course of hospitals and fire departments, you have never asked us if we need anything. You always bring us things. You always bring us gifts. Some of them are drunk, some of them stink. But you always bring us gifts. And you've never asked if we need anything, and we never thought we could ask you. So we have changed the scripting for New Year's Eve and for mass casualty to the first question the communications office asks the hospital is, do you need any resources? Then how many patients can you take? And then how many do you have? So just keep that in mind because sometimes the hospitals don't know that they can ask for help. And one of the things that we're working on is, is you know, sending this battalion chief in a squad to the, to the hospital to decompress, because I sure could have used it the night of October 1st. The therapy dogs came from all over the country. They were amazing. And you know, you think they came for the victims? Oh, heck no, they came for the staff. And they made such a huge, huge difference. You would think, I, I mean, I, I'm a dog lover. I, I own my own and always have but I didn't realize truly to people who needed that, just that moment of relief, what just a golden retriever can do for you, you know? I have a pit bull, but <laughs> she'd do things for you too, she'd lick you to death. But just having these guys come by and say, and do they just stop and say, hi, is there anything you need? Can you do anything? And that dog breaks down so many barriers that we try to protect ourselves from each other, we try to keep that facade of strength and the dog just releases that, and it's just so beneficial. Don't ask infection control first. <laughs> Tell them afterwards. These dogs all have their shots and had baths, but you know how infection control can be. So I work for UHS, Universal Health Services. We have hospitals all over the country. And they chose to put Vegas on their, um, on their cover for this particular one. But the entire magazine is about how hospitals across the nation pulled together in crisis, whether it was hurricane, floods, the shooting, whatever it was. And even though your plans aren't perfect and they don't work in real life, like they, they work on paper, the hospital, your hospital staff comes together. If you've got teamwork at all, it'll come together and everything's gonna be A-OK. -okay.
It may not be perfect, and you'll have your after-action report will take you 10 days to write and 40 pages long, and you'll still get it done, but things get better. So keep your chins up. Something bad's gonna happen to you sometime in your career. Know that it's happened to somebody else. There's resources out there for you, and there's ways to get through it. Don't be prideful. Don't be strong. Seek help. Share your, share your information with other people. Let others know that it hurts, and be there for each other. That is all for this episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this Vegas Strong series. Be sure to log into Target Solutions and take the post test so you can get your CEs for this. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. If you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me and EMS. Until then, take care of each other and we'll talk to you soon.